This is Cultured Hollywood for smart people for Monday, January 4th, 2021. I am Nico and I am your host. And we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Happy New Year. Happy do near, as we're fond of saying on the other podcast. What's going on? What's happening? How are you? Um, you've heard the year in reviews. There have been many of them. I have done many of them on my other various shows. I've written about the past year. I've read about the past year. I've thought a lot about the past year. And I don't think I'm going to stop thinking about the past year for a very long while. 2020 is going to stick in my craw for a long ass time. But we've been doing a lot of reviewing and I have more reviewing today on this podcast, but it's going to be a little different. Consider this not only the 2020 year in review, but also the 2021 year in preview. Ah, ah. Please hold your applause. (laughs) It's 2021. It's a new year. I hope I find you well. As they are fond of saying, hindsight is 2020, right? And that has never been more true than over the past year. Not only was it the year 2020, but also we had a lot of hindsight. A lot of things we wish we did differently. A lot of regrets, both on like a national level, an international level, economically, scientifically, geopolitically, right? A lot of stuff we wish we did differently, but also like on a personal level. You know what I'm talking about. All those hobbies you wish you started. If only you had the time, right? That's what you said. If only you had the time to start scrapbooking. If only you had the time to play piano. If only you had the time to start that spice garden of yours. And where are you now? It's 2021. It's a new year. You're back at the gym for about a week. And that 3,000-piece jigsaw puzzle is sitting on your living room table incomplete. A lot of regrets. I hope 2021 isn't the same way. I had an all right 2020. Uh, We talked a lot about that on Two Cents this week, so go listen to that if you want to hear the three of us break down the past year on a personal level. But this year in pop culture was very trying. Um, Often it was hard to find stories worth discussing on this podcast. Stuff that I thought was uh, worth your time, frankly, because there were a lot of things going on in the world. There was more news in the year 2020 than ever. That trend continues year to year. But like, I don't know, the new Marvel release, not exactly top of mind. Oh, Taylor Swift has another surprise album. Great. But like 4000 people are dying a day of a plague. Oh, hey, would you look at that? Tiger King is number one on Netflix. You know what the United States is number one in? Unemployment. So, look, I know it's kind of silly to sit here and recap the past year in pop culture because uh, there's nothing really worth recapping. But we're going to do it anyway because that's what I've decided to do with my life. And trust me, it's a lot more fun than this 10,000 word essay I read in the New Yorker this week 
about how the United States government failed in its coronavirus response in every conceivable way. <laughs> I read that thing last night. It's called The Plague Year. The same guy that wrote um, the uh, the 9-11 book. Uh, what was that, that book called? The Looming Tower. Same guy that wrote that wrote this like uh, 10,000 word essay called The Plague Year. And um, yeah, it's just <laughs> like if you if you want to understand like why human beings are incapable of working together for a common good, this is about as good a case study as you can find. Um, so if you would like your faith in humanity shook one last time, read the plague here. Anyway, what are we talking about? Oh, pop culture. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to recap the past year in movies, television, and music, as we do every year. Uh, we're going to talk about the ups and the downs. I have some top 10 lists that are already published on the website, but I'm going to read them and extrapolate my thoughts on them just a bit further. We're going to talk about what this year means for Hollywood and the pop culture landscape, and we're going to talk about where we are going and what 21, 2021 has in store and the narratives that you need to follow in order to have a full picture as to what's happening in Tinseltown. So all of that is coming up around the corner. This is Cultured. Stick around. We'll be right back. All right. Um, culture can be a lot of things. It can be thought-provoking, challenging, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching. Enigmatic, hard to decipher. But it can also be comfortable. And that generally is the role that television has played over the years as a ways of delivering comfort to you at your home where you are most comfortable. It was a way of uniting families, connecting communities, delivering information on a national and international level. And it was also a way of connecting you to characters that you liked in locations that you wanted to spend time in. It's what sitcoms did all the way in the 50s, through the 60s, 70s, and even now. Streaming obviously has evolved the art form, has evolved the medium. But this week, I just saw a whole lot of people on social media freaking out about The Office leaving Netflix. That's not much different than 90 million people watching the Seinfeld finale. It's not much different than 150 million people watching the MASH finale. You know? There is community. There is comfort. There is normalcy. And in a year that was particularly abnormal, TV did a lot of the heavy lifting. You spent a lot of time watching those coronavirus press conferences, the White House press briefings early on in the year, March, April, May. I was glued to every single one of those. It was the first time in my life where I recall the national news on a daily basis having a direct impact on my day-to-day -day operations. What the president or vice president or Dr. Anthony Fauci said on an afternoon in March had a direct impact on my life. That has never happened to me in 25 years on this planet. I've always remained attentive to the news. I've always followed it closely. I've always had an opinion about what was going on on a national level, and I've always thought politics and government to be important. But I have never watched a press conference delivered by the president on a Tuesday afternoon in March 
and thought, wait a minute. I'm about to find out if I can go to the gym. What this guy says has an impact on whether or not I can see my grandmother. That's what's going on. What this dude says on television at 4.30 today is going to determine how much money is in my bank account in a month. If I have to pay student loans. Again, never happened before. That's what happened this year. Television was a way of connecting us. If you watched it on Facebook, if you watched it on Twitter, if you read about it, whatever. It's all the same thing. It's all television. It's all mass communication. It's all media. So television did a lot of heavy lifting this year because we were stuck at home and we had nowhere else to go. And television has always been a way of comfort, a way of instilling normalcy. But uh, man, it was a tough job this year. And I'm not sure it always rose to the occasion, to be honest with you. It was crazy at the beginning of this pandemic. You watched not the scripted shows, but the unscripted shows. You watched The Tonight Show or Stephen Colbert or Bill Maher. You watched some of the 24-hour news networks. Um, And it was comprised mainly of two dudes on a webcam talking to each other. And that was the show. But it was on a much larger screen. And the people on the screen were much more famous. And maybe they were doing like live readings of The Princess Bride. Or they were doing a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion, doing a, a reading of the pilot script. Whatever it was, more often than not, it was two dudes on a webcam. And you watched it at 1130 and there were commercials in between the shows. And I don't know. I just thought to myself, this is YouTube. This is podcasting. This is what I do with Nick and Rob every week. Like, this is what we do. Perhaps we're not Ben Affleck. We're not Ben Stiller. We're not Ben Stein. We're not another guy named Ben. (laughs) We're not famous. We're not Stephen Colbert. We're not Jimmy Fallon. We don't have a house band that's playing live from their basements. But I do have friends that play instruments. And they sounded a lot like the Roots crew in the basement when I heard them play, you know, it's not the same, man. You strip away that artifice. You strip away the lights. You strip away the cameras. You strip away the live crowd. You strip away the glamor. What are you left with? Two dudes on a webcam. It's what I've been doing for eight years. It's amazing. This year we saw at least again on an unscripted level, the scripted stuff Still remains excellent, and I'm about to run down my top 10 list of television shows over the past year, and um, they're all magnificent. I actually think on a scripted level, this was a phenomenal year for television. I think like the streaming services and premium networks were pushing the envelopes in a way that I've never seen before. So kudos to the scripted stuff. But the unscripted stuff, which is now the backbone of linear television... Everyone's on streaming now. So everyone's binge watching The Office. Everyone's binge watching The Queen's Gambit. Everyone's binge watching The Mandalorian. The only reason you pay for linear television anymore is to spontaneously stumble on a live television show. 
It's to stumble on James Corden. It's to stumble on Stephen Colbert. It's to stumble on Rachel Maddow. It's to stumble on ESPN's first take at 11 o'clock or Jeopardy at 7. And it was shocking. And I'm particularly talking about the late night talk shows here. It was shocking how anemic those shows looked post-pandemic. Watching Jennifer Aniston talk to Jimmy Kimmel from her living room. Whoa. (laughs) Like, it's a podcast. It's YouTube. The window is shrinking. The gap is shrinking. You know what I mean? Like, your advantage, your leg up on the competition is gone. All you bring is spectacle. And once you strip away the spectacle, you are left with a mediocre podcast. And I'm telling you what, you're a lot worse than the independent guys without the writer staff, without the house band, who have been doing this, what I'm doing right now, for a decade. So this was a huge year for the internet and a bad year for live television. And, you know, at first it was, I I think, a, a cool gimmick this was in the early days of the pandemic. We're all in this together, right? We're like alone together. Uh, Zoom happy hours were a big thing. This is before we became these germophobic, antisocial, hollow shells of humans, um, which is what we are now. We're not even living in existence anymore. We're just zombies that get up, sit on a Zoom call with the camera turned off for three hours, and then go and watch five episodes of, uh, of Property Brothers. You know, before that, I think it was cool to see. Remember they were doing like those live benefits where Bono and the Rolling Stones were at home and they were like playing music over Skype and they were raising money for essential workers and hospitals. And that was all well and good. But now it is insane. The lack of advantage that some of these networks have that CBS or NBC has. And this has been, again, um, a gap that has been shrinking rapidly over the years, particularly with the rise of Netflix and streaming. But now the competition isn't just Netflix. It isn't just HBO Max. It isn't just Hulu. It's Ninja on Twitch. Or it's whatever YouTuber or podcaster you listen to or watch every day. Who just do better stuff. Who do smarter, better stuff. Without spectacle and without... A-list celebrities, but in many ways, they're becoming their own A-list celebrities, these YouTubers. So 2021 is going to be an interesting year for television. The linear model, again, is on a steep decline towards oblivion. It's been that way for 10 years, and the coronavirus pandemic only accelerated that decline. Um, But you're also, I think, going to see a slight lull in content. I I think 2021 will be the first year in the last 10 where we actually see the number of scripted television shows produced go down a hair. Um, That would be my bold prediction. Every year it's been climbing rapidly. I think last year they passed 500 or at least came very close to 500 scripted shows in the United States. I think uh, this is the first year that you're going to see less. And part of that is because production was shut down for seven months and you know, not necessarily the network shows like NCIS or Law and Order or whatever, like Grey's Anatomy. All of those shows uh, started production just a bit late, but the turnaround is pretty quick. The cable networks like HBO, um, I think they just shot Succession or just began production 
on Succession last month. Uh, that was a show that just won the Emmy for Best Drama. It's a hot show. The ratings were up in season two. And uh, just word of mouth wise, it's a, it's a buzzworthy uh, critical darling. And that's what HBO often chases. Um, but HBO didn't want to have to skip a year with Succession. And they had to. And uh, that show takes a while to write, takes a while to film, and takes a while to edit. Who knows if we're going to see Succession by the end of 2021? Who knows if we're going to see Better Call Saul by the end of 2021? Um, and Netflix has been pretty candid saying, like, we're just going to keep doing our thing. We buy a lot of shows, most of which you never hear of. So it's not like you're going to notice any uh, major downtick in production. Because, again, you're only watching 15 Netflix shows a year and we make 200. So... Uh, even if that number ticks down a hair, you're probably not going to notice it on their end. But I, I do think in terms of like consensus, um, uh, like word of mouth, water cooler shows like Better Call Saul, Succession, Barry is another one on HBO, uh, The Walking Dead, maybe for AMC. You may see a dearth. You may see a dearth in television content this year. And I think we were just coming off a very strong year. Television had to be strong because people were watching a lot of it. And I think they rose to the occasion in 2020. Uh, and I would call it a banner year in television. Um, I, I don't anticipate that repeating next year. And I would not be shocked if next year's Emmys were among the thinnest crop of Emmys contenders we've seen. Uh, so that is something to look out for. And this is also very important for some of the streaming services, particularly Disney Plus and HBO Max, who plan on making a major splash with original series this year. Disney Plus has one show, one bona fide hit show, The Mandalorian. It was a major success. Season two was even a bigger success than season one. Disney Plus has now structured the entire Star Wars universe around The Mandalorian and more broadly, and they announced this a few months ago, they're going to be restructuring their entire distribution model to fit streaming. You're still going to see some major releases in theaters over the next few years, but miniseries, limited series, whatever you want to call them, are here to stay. WandaVision, the first Marvel miniseries starring Wanda and The Vision, is that their names? <laughs> I can't keep track anymore. But that show is debuting this month on Disney+. Plus. Uh, watch and see how that does. See, see how transparent Disney is with the streaming numbers on that show. Like, that'll let you know. Don't necessarily look for the numbers, because they're not going to give you any hard data. Just look at how much they're bragging about it. Because that's going to be very telling. And in a year where we had no Marvel movies... That's the biggest franchise in the world right now. We had uh, no Black Widow. We had no Eternals movie. We had no Shang-Chi. Um, you know, the, the miniseries are going to be the cornerstone of their business, at least for the next year. And if production continues to shut down in L.A., which seems to be the case now. I just read a story um, this morning that was like unions are urging actors to drop out of these productions because of the uptick in, uh, in, in cases in the Los Angeles area. So a lot of these studios are shutting down again just when they were ramping back up, just when it seemed like things were getting back on track. Uh, are we going to see the new Captain America show? Or, or the Winter Soldier and the, and the Falcon, right? 
I got the names. Are we going to see that show with Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie? Are we going to see the new Boba Fett show? Are we going to see the Hawkeye show? Like, I understand these are minuscule questions in the grand scheme of things, and it's stuff that only Disney executives and hardcore nerds care about. But I do think, like, this is an important year for Disney+. Plus. It's an important year for HBO Max. The streaming wars are now in full swing. They're here. All of the major streaming services that had been promised over the last two to three years are live. They are active, and they have subscriber bases, and they are fighting each other for eyeballs. And uh, original programming is is where the money's at. Like, you can only ride this high for so long. Disney can only ride out these 90 million subscribers uh, worldwide for so long. They have to deliver the goods, and one miniseries every year is not going to be enough. So these are questions. These are important ones. They may seem small, but they're actually very big. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how production goes. But I, I do anticipate, as I said, a slight downtick in, uh, in the content pipeline. So here we go. I'm going to read you my top 10 of 2020. This is a list that I published on the website, too many thoughts, media.com or tmt.media for short. You can read my little blurbs on the website. There's also another music list. We'll get to that in a bit, but here we go. My top 10 television shows of the year. 2020 number 10. Jeopardy. Kind of a strange pick for this spot. I could have went with a number of other shows, as I mentioned on the site. Industry, High Fidelity, Zero, 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 I May Destroy You, The Last Dance, Curb Your Enthusiasm, all shows that I thought were worth including on the list. Just missed the cut. Why put Jeopardy on? Well, Alex Trebek is dead, and I'm sentimental, and I'm a sap. And I don't know if I'll ever have a chance to write about Alex Trebek again. So this was my opportunity to say how much he meant to me and how much the show has meant to me over the years. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I have probably watched Jeopardy more than any other television show in the world. And that means I've spent more time with Alex Trebek than mostly everyone. I mean, besides my immediate family and friends, like uh, the amount of hours Alex Trebek and I have spent together on my sofa is through the roof um so uh you know this was a a very important year for jeopardy obviously uh, because the pandemic production had to halt and they were showing reruns for a number of months and um you know those post-pandemic episodes although still jeopardy uh you could tell alex was in poor health his final episodes as a matter of fact air this week as of today, you can watch the fifth to last episode tonight, Monday, and Friday will be his final taping. You can tell the guy was uh, having a, a rough go at it, but it's a, an incredible story what he was able to go through uh, in order to finish the job that he started. But you also have uh, this greatest of all time tournament, which they did at the beginning of the year. It was a beautiful swan song for Alex. Uh, who got to host a tournament between the three greatest Jeopardy players of all time, James uh, Holtzauer, Ken Jennings, and Brad Rutter. The event lasted four nights. Ken Jennings ended up winning. That fourth episode, I still contend, is the greatest episode of any game show I have ever seen ever. 
I had goosebumps. I was on the edge of my seat. I was chewing my nails and I was screaming at the television set. It uh, it was a truly magical television experience. And I thought it was worth mentioning. So who knows what Jeopardy is going to look like in the coming year? Who knows who's going to host it? Ken Jennings, LeVar Burton. Uh, 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 who else are they talking about? George Stephanopoulos may take over that job as well. But uh, I'm sentimental. I'm a sap. And I included Jeopardy at my number 10 of the year. Here's number nine. It's called The Outsider. I'm as baffled by this conflicting evidence as you are. Did you kill my son, Terry? Look at me! Terry murdered a child. Everything he does after that is like he's begging us to catch him. What kind of criminal does that? He didn't do it. This is an HBO show that debuted at the beginning of the year, I believe, all the way back in January, which feels like an eternity ago. But it was a pretty splashy debut at the time. I think it did fairly well for HBO. At least that was the sentiment. However, HBO decided not to renew the show for a season two. I think they had a pitch for it. They had a take on the material and Richard Price was ready to go. But uh, HBO decided not to bring it back and it has since been looking for a network to rescue it. I'm a little shocked frankly that they decided not to bring the show back considering the pedigree here ben mendelson stars as uh, a detective who is tasked with investigating the murder of a young boy in his town he soon finds out that supernatural forces may be to blame jason bateman is in this show as well he directs the first two episodes and stars in them um also cynthia arrivo who is now an oscar nominee and uh, a multi-hyphenate in her own right an incredible Broadway star, singer, actress, uh, plays uh, Holly Gibney. And the most notable thing is the Stephen King of it all. This is based on a Stephen King novel of the same name. Richard Price is a novelist, of course, himself, wrote uh, the book Clockers, which went on to uh, be adapted as a movie by Spike Lee, also wrote the novel Lush Life, just a veteran crime writer, hard-boiled cop drama is his thing he did the night of on hbo a few years ago that awesome miniseries with riz ahmed and john turturro he was also of course in that legendary writer's room at the wire with david simon um so he adapts this stephen king novel which is a cop drama at least in structure but soon devolves into a very stephen king story with um a supernatural monster and uh, and uh, I won't spoil anything about the show. I will just say that it gets very X-Files in its later episodes. And I'll be honest, I'm not always the biggest Stephen King fan, especially when he, you know, just throws a monster into a pretty conventional story for no reason. Like, I, I love The Green Mile, and I, I, I think it's a great film. I never read the book, and I love that story, and I think it's an awesome prison drama but then, like, uh, I don't know, the big dude starts vomiting butterflies, and <laughs> I'm like, just make Stand By Me. Just make Shawshank Redemption, you know what I'm saying? But whatever, right? Um, Stephen King, of course, is still a great writer, one of the all-time greats, and uh, he just churns out movie premises, and all of his novels beg to be adapted for the screen. So, of course, there was going to be a very high floor for this show, but when Richard Price, uh, you know, takes over the, the screenwriting duties here and takes over the show running duties and brings a very, uh, very 
procedural, process-oriented, dialogue-heavy approach to what is, I don't know, paperback fair. Yeah, it's not an insult. It's not a not a ding on Stephen King, but you know, it's a the B movie, at least in premise. But in execution, you have this really awesome, just like hard-boiled Richard Price story with incredible performances from Ben Mendelsohn and Cynthia Revo. Uh, Jason Bateman directs the shit out of those first two episodes and sets a, a stylistic palette that uh, just worked throughout the entire thing. Incredibly entertaining. And I, I just think a match made in heaven. I love when two seemingly at odds artists unite on projects like this. Um, the example I always use is David Fincher and uh, Aaron Sorkin on the social network. And it was a similar thing here. I didn't love the last few episodes and that's why it's towards the bottom of my list and not towards the top. But I think a a worthwhile show to check out a really fun binge. Um, And it's kind of a shame that the show is not coming back because I think it had a lot of potential in season two. All right. Number eight. It's called the comedy store. The first time I went on stage at the comedy store, I cried. The light is right on you. Like a dagger. This hurts so much. Why do I stay? I don't think that there's a building that has affected culture more than the store. The comedy store. This is a show, frankly, I haven't seen discussed anywhere. Um, Not on any of the top ten lists, certainly. Um, But even when it came out, there was very little said about it. Maybe because it is such a niche subject matter and it is something that only I would be interested in. And that's fair enough. It's a very in-the-weeds documentary in five parts about the world-famous comedy store, the comedy club located in Los Angeles, founded by Mitzi Shore and uh, managed by Mitzi Shore for a number of years. Uh, All of the greats in the world of stand-up comedy at one point or another performed at the comedy store. It was Richard Pryor's um, comedy club of choice. That's where he recorded, I believe, at least one of his specials. Uh, Live on the Sunset Strip is, I believe, recorded in the main room at the comedy store, but I could be wrong about that. No, I'm definitely right. That's definitely where that was. Uh, But it's an iconic club that is still uh, alive and well today. I guess not during the pandemic. It's struggling like every live venue is uh, in in 2020 and now 2021. But at the time of the documentaries filming, it was uh, popping guys like Bill Burr and Joe Rogan, Whitney Cummings, Nikki Glaser, uh, all would pop up at the comedy store seemingly every other night. And uh, this guy, Mike Binder, who was a veteran of the store, was doing uh, comedy in the store all the way back in like 1973, directs this thing. It's five parts, goes through the entire history, tells so many Mitzi store stories, so many Pauly Shore stories, so many Sam Kinison stories and uh, Andrew Dice Clay stories. And everyone is in this thing. Jim Carrey, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Joe Rogan, Michael Keaton pops up, talks about his stand-up career. I didn't even know that Michael Keaton ever did stand-up, but he's in this documentary. Um, And what I love about it so much, besides the fact that it's incredibly in the weeds and I am a stand-up comedy fanatic and I just cannot get enough, I devour documentaries like this, is how inside baseball it felt and how personal it felt. And it was a lot more like sitting with Mike Binder in his living room and watching home movies as opposed to watching a 60-minute segment about the comedy store. And look, Dateline 2020, 
the Today Show, Good Morning America. Like, they all have great producers. They all have great journalists doing awesome documentary work. But there is something about Mike Binder's relationship to this building and about his experience and about his connection to all of the comics that he interviews that is so heartwarming and so touching and so raw and so real. And look, there are times where uh, excuses are made for bad behavior. And, uh, you know, it's obviously a a comedy club in the 70s, 80s and 90s was, (laughs) you know, (laughs) not always the greatest place to be, but the documentary is honest about it. And I I don't think that um, I I don't think that the, the, the documentary is ever too glowing it's ever too rosy eyed um and it's it's ever too nostalgic although it is certainly very nostalgic um and it is definitely pro comedy store i i just found the um the 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 point of view here to be so specific and i think i wrote about this in my review the best documentaries are the ones told from the inside out not the outside in and um i loved it i absolutely loved it if you just watch one episode, watch the third. The last 10 minutes, um, a, a comic relays the story of Sam Kinison's tragic death in a car crash. Um, an incredible story and uh, one of the best things I've seen on TV this year. So maybe this is just my, uh, my, my obsessions talking. But I loved the comedy store and I think it's well worth anyone's time, even if they're not a huge stand-up fan. All right. Number seven. It's called How To with John Wilson. Hey, New York. HBO is having a hard time uh, explaining what my show is, uh, so I I just figured that I'd just try to do it myself. Usually the host of a TV show is uh, right in front of the camera, and you can see exactly where the uh, voice is coming from, which I guess people like. But in my show, you never really see the host, and that's because I'm actually behind the camera the whole time. Uh, filming everything you see. How do I explain what so, this show is? To... Well, it's um, from Nathan Fielder. So maybe that will answer some questions for you. If you know anything about me, you know how much of a fan I am of Nathan Fielder's work. I've been a fan of his ever since Nick Evangelista introduced me to Nathan for you. What is that? Five or six years ago now? Incredible show on Comedy Central, which uh, recently ended its run with this amazing two-hour movie. But How To With John Wilson, which is produced by Nathan Fielder, is cut from the same cloth. Certainly not the same show. It certainly has its own unique point of view, and Nathan Fielder is not the star of it. It is now John Wilson who takes center stage. But it is definitely in the same vein, and I understand where this show fits in the greater Nathan For You expanded universe. John Wilson is this documentarian who's lived in Queens for a number of years. His first job out of college was for a private detective. And (laughs) his job, I guess, was to follow people, stalk people with a camera. And as he describes it in several interviews he did about the show, it taught him detail. It taught him how to spot the very small things in a very large frame. Um, And it also trained him to be able to sit in one place with a camera and stay fixated on nothing to stay fixated on often just stagnant buildings with no activity. 
And this skill set he used over the years to enhance his filmmaking. And he published, I believe, going back to 2009, these short films on his website, much like this show, called How To. And uh, if you go to this this site, I think it's johnsmovies.com. You can find these original shorts. But, um, you know, the premises are often very simple. How to live with regret. How to escape from Park City. How to act on reality TV. How to remain single. How to keep smoking. Uh, and look, these names are sort of misnomers. They are misleading. Often uh, these shorts do not actually deal with the question at hand. They are just excuses for John to stitch his footage together. And that's exactly what this show is. Nathan Fielder saw these shorts, decided to help John Wilson pitch this concept to HBO. HBO said yes. And here you are, six episodes, essentially more expensive and elongated versions of John's short films. And all of these episodes stay squarely in John Wilson's point of view. And it is a very fascinating point of view. The guy is an incredibly clever filmmaker. He's an excellent editor of footage. Um, The way that he sort of uses different shots of New York City as poetry and as metaphor is brilliant. And... (laughs) There are so many chuckles to have along the way. I mean, it's the type of show that rewards multiple viewing because every time you see a new joke, a a new visual reference, a a new turn of phrase that just makes you laugh. And it's also a really awesome peek into New York City, which is a place I haven't been to in a while now because of this stupid pandemic. Um, But man, one of my favorite things to do when I I, I wasn't a a germaphobic uh, shell of a man is... Go to New York City and hang out and look at uh, the random shit happening on the side of the road. And, uh, you know, that experience is now gone for the most part because we are confined to our homes with very little breaks in the matrix, as John Wilson puts it. Um, But this is uh, an awesome nature documentary, an awesome way of uh, seeing the, the little idiosyncrasies in New York that make it so great and that make it such a magical place to visit and live in. I don't know if I have uh, properly articulated the, the, the point of this show or the essence of this show. And I'm not going to try. I'm just going to recommend that you watch it because it truly is a, a one of a kind television experience. So that is my number seven, how to with John Wilson. Number six, it's of course the Mandalorian. You must reunite it with its own kind. Where? This you must determine. The songs of eons past tell of battles between Mandalore the Great and an order of sorcerers called Jedi. You expect me to search the galaxy and deliver this creature to a race of enemy sorcerers? This is the way. I've talked a lot about Mando. You, I'm sure, have talked a lot about Mando with your friends. You've read a lot about Mando. There's nothing I can add to the Mando talk. Um, but it's great. It's an awesome show. And I think it made the leap from a really good show to a really great show this year. Am I concerned about the fan service? Am I concerned about the growing universe? Am I concerned about how the entire Star Wars franchise... Are, are now just branching off the Mandalorian tree. Yeah. 
moderately concerned. But spoiler alert, when fucking Luke Skywalker came in and started like uh, crushing robots with the force and R2-D2 started talking with Baby Yoda, yeah, I leapt out of my chair. What am I, a robot? What do you think I am? You think I'm a sociopath? Of course I screamed at the top of my lungs. Of course I was excited because the show did the work and the show earned that payoff. Was it too big of a trump card to play? Was it uh, too soon to cash that check? Ah, I guess we'll find out down the line, won't we? But for now, season two of Mando, incredible allusions to, uh, to, uh, to, to the Akira Kurosawa films of yesteryear. It's all of the great westerns, the John Ford stuff, the Clint Eastwood stuff. It's amazing. I love Mando. In season one, it was my nightlight. In season two, it was much watched television. It's number six on my list. Number five, normal people. You know, when we were together in first year of college. That was kind of a perfect time in my life, to be honest. It'd be awkward if something happened with us. No one would have to know. Hulu show. I didn't know your mom. 12 episodes, each a half hour long, based on a novel by Sally Rooney. Very sexy. Lots of uh, lots of sex happening on this show. That's at least the elevator pitch. Uh, stars these two young actors, Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Meskel. I think both are destined to be superstars. I think they're both unbelievable. Both Irish blokes. And uh, the show is about their experience coming of age in Ireland uh, the, the show begins with these two characters in high school falling in love and uh, they eventually move to college and drift apart and then grow together again. And it is uh, not usually my jam. It's not usually my cup of tea, um, but it's so intimate. And in many ways, it's a show about intimacy and a show about, um, you know, who you allow yourself to be when you are with that one person that makes you feel like you and that makes you feel free to be who you are. And also it's about uh, trying to be someone that you're not and struggling to find your way in the world and to find your identity and to craft your identity uh, in a way that uh, makes you happy and that brings you satisfaction and joy. And that's really heavy stuff. And, um, you know, watching this show, I was so wrapped up in the story between these two lovers. And I don't normally get that way with romances, but I just wanted the best for these damn kids. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Marianne and Connell. It was, it was nerve wracking stuff, man. It looked like they weren't going to make it for a while. Oh, I spoiled it. Damn it. Yeah, they end up okay, but we got a little rocky in the middle there. <laughs> Um, just a, a really cool, vibey, awesome show from earlier this year that I think has also gotten a little overlooked in these end of year top 10 lists, but that is going to be my number five normal people. Don't watch it with your kids in the room. Uh, also like maybe don't watch it with your girlfriend. Maybe just <laughs> snuggle up by yourself <laughs> after the Eagles game and <laughs> watch a couple episodes of these two Irish kids fucking 
<laughs> not for everybody, but definitely for me. Oh, I should also mention that um, uh, Lenny Abramson, who is this awesome director, he did Room a few years ago. He did this movie, Frank, that I absolutely adore from, I think, 2013, 2014, is the director of at least the first six episodes of this show. And he sets this incredible visual palette. It, each sex scene and actually each scene in general are so intimate. They are so in the face of these characters. And oftentimes that style can become a little stale. Sometimes you can overuse the close up here. Perfect. 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 Love normal people. That's my number five. Number four. It's called the plot against America. Our candidate for president Charles Lindbergh. David Simon show. Starring John Turturro, Winona Ryder, Zoe Kazan. I think most of them have worked with David Simon in the past. I know at least Winona Ryder has. But David Simon has been doing great television work ever since The Wire. Many people consider The Wire to be the greatest television show of all time. But since then, Treme, Show Me a Hero, The Deuce, which just wrapped up its, uh, its third and final season last year, Generation Kill, another David Simon miniseries for HBO, each series is just excellent, and uh, as much credit as The Wire gets, for some reason, we just don't give enough credit to these other shows. Plot Against America is just exceptional as both a, an act of filmmaking and, act, and acting, but also screenwriting, as always, because like David Simon is so good at this. He is so good at this specific brand of television, which is very political, um, you know, advocates for particular causes does not shy away from political analogies and metaphors. And there are more than a few allusions to Donald Trump in this show. So understand that this is political activism in many ways, and uh, it has a point of view and you just have to know that going in and accept it for what it is. Although you might roll your eyes a few times at some pretty thin analogies uh, and 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 uh, and symbols along the way. There are more than a few Trump stand-ins in this show, but it's a pretty high concept. It's an alternate history, revisionist history show, goes all the way back to World War II. And what if FDR lost the election? I believe his third election to Charles Lindbergh, who at the time was this war hero, this pilot. Um, he was uh, the Republican nominee all the way back. Uh, what's the year? I'm so bad with history. I don't know dates. But it's an alternate history if Charles Lindbergh won that election. First of all, it sounds pretty in the weeds for an alternate history show, but also seems very un-David Simon. David Simon often doesn't work in universes that are not ours. The Wire is squarely set in this universe. Right. These are stories. These are characters that could exist and probably do exist because David Simon ran into them in Baltimore when he was working as a journalist. Same with the deuce. It's a period piece, but it still feels like that was a period that actually happened in this timeline. This is based on a Philip Roth novel. Uh, it takes some leaps with, uh, you know, certain historical events. Uses some artistic license and essentially makes the case that if you don't nip fascism in the bud, if you don't fight purveyors of uh, uh, of racism and bigotry and stop them in their tracks, they will be allowed to flourish. Again, I think you know who he's talking about. Here's the miracle with this show. 
It's a David Simon show, and David Simon is not generally known for going big. This story goes big. This story has fate of the world stakes. This story depicts the president. This story depicts historical figures, real historical figures. And this story, at times, pulls the camera out to show you the landscape of the world. But it also feels incredibly small and intimate and interior. And that is David Simon's brilliance. His ability to take big ideas and shrink them down to the human level. To take ideas of racism and shrink it down to a single uh, housing project in Baltimore. To take ideas like economic disparity and capitalism and shrink it down to a drug dealer. That's what David Simon does. He doesn't do big shows. This was a big show. But he made it feel small. And I don't think I've ever seen a show quite like it before. That show, The Man in the High Castle, that Amazon show from a few years ago, massive hit. Again, that's like a pretty expensive, like uh, a, a wide canvas show with elements of science fiction. At no point did it feel intimate. At no point did it feel like this is a story that could be happening to you. That's what the plot against America felt like. He told the story through the perspective of one Jewish family. He very rarely strayed from that point of view. Most scenes were set in the home of this family. Most stories uh, involved the inner turmoil among the family. It was all very human. It was all very intimate. It was all very real. It was all very grounded. And I want to see David Simon do more stuff like this. I know he comes from a journalistic background and he's often drawing from that background and writing about stories that he has seen firsthand. But I kind of like when he takes that journalistic ethic and he applies it to the world of fiction. And we discover things about these characters and we discover things about this world much like a journalist would if they were living in it. I loved Plot Against America and again... Needs to be on more top 10 lists. It's my number four. Number three. I'm not going to talk about it anymore on here. I've done enough on the other podcast. Listen to the movie Hall of Fame from a few weeks ago if you want to hear my thoughts on Small Axe. Steve McQueen directs. A lot of people think that this is a series of five movies. I disagree because I'm smart and everyone else is dumb, including my co-host Adam Hall, who included two of the Small Axe episodes on his end of year top 10 movie list. Uh, whatever. You guys, call it whatever you want. I say it's a brilliant director showcase. That second episode, Lovers Rock is the best movie I've seen this year, if you want to call it a movie. I don't call it a movie. I call it a television episode, so it's the best television episode I've seen this year. Um, perfect. Perfect show uh, by a perfect filmmaker who uh, never ceases to amaze me behind the camera. Small Axe, BBC production, stream it now on Amazon Prime. It's my number three. Number two, The Queen's Gambit. 
the readers of life how it feels to be a girl among all those men. I don't mind it. Chess isn't always competitive. Chess can also be beautiful. Massive show was number one on Netflix for what seemed like two months. Netflix says it was the number one limited series in its history. I think that and Tiger King were the two biggest pop culture events of 2020. They were the most consensus water cooler things to talk about every week. Anya Taylor-Joy stars, Scott Frank, veteran writer, both writes and directs every episode. Um, shocking. Just, just shocking that this show was as popular as it was. I mean, you look at the premise, Cold War era story about a young orphan who takes up chess. Uh, Not Justice League we're talking about, you know? (laughs) This isn't like jumps off the page, like, you know, old time Hollywood guy with his cigar. You know what the kids want? Yeah, they're looking for... Shows about orphans addicted to opioids. Yes, that's it. Throw in a janitor that's really good at chess. And you know, every episode's going to end. We're going to have her play chess. But trust me, it's good. Like, look, I'm interested in that show. I'm interested in anything Scott Frank does, and I'm interested in anything Anya Taylor-Joy does. But number one on Netflix for two months? A miracle. And also, like, you watch the show, and it's amazing. It's number two on my list. I think Scott Frank, on a writer's level, is great. But directorially, this thing is a marvel. This thing is so precise and so subtle and so character-driven and so beautiful to look at. And the production design is so immaculate. And the costume design is brilliant. And every choice, every edit, every cut, every angle, just perfectly considered. It's great. But you watch this execution, not really like, does this have mass appeal? I must. It does. It obviously does. Number one on Netflix. Everyone I know has seen this show. But I can't square this. I can't square this. And I I think it's a wonderful, wonderful anomaly. And I don't think I'm ever going to see anything like this again that has such broad appeal. And it as it is as compelling as it is for the reasons that it is compelling. This isn't the Mandalorian. This is better than the Mandalorian, but also a lot more subtle than the Mandalorian. I, I don't know what happened here, but I need to start giving audiences a little more credit, apparently. Because the show is a marvel. It's a triumph. It's immaculate. And I am waiting on the edge of my seat for whatever Scott Frank delivers next. Because this guy might be the best director working in the medium. So, so, so good. Love the Queen's Gambit. I got to play some chess now. All right. And here's number one. I can't go back to being Jimmy McGill. That name is burned. This is a fresh start. This is how I move forward. And I like it. We all make our choices. And those choices, they put us on a road. Sometimes those choices seem small, but they put you on the road. You think about getting off, 
but eventually you're back on it. Better Call Saul. Best show of the year. Don't overthink it. It's the best. It's the best show made by the best people. Starring the best actors, written by the best writers. It's the best. Remains the best. It's been the best since its first season, really. It's just no one noticed it. It's been the best since Breaking Bad debuted in 2008. What? What? How? How is it still this good? How do these writers continue to find new approaches to this story, to this universe? New dimensions to these characters. New sources of conflict. I don't get it. All I know is I'm watching season five of this prequel about the funny lawyer from Breaking Bad. And we're on episode nine. And I'm watching with my father and my brother who are, you know, massive Breaking Bad fans and now even bigger Better Call Saul fans. And we are screaming with terror. Like, we are stressing the fuck out. We know how this story ends, for the most part. There are a few characters that we don't know their fate, but we know that Saul Goodman ends up in Breaking Bad, and he's alive and well, and so is Mike Ehrmantraut, and once uh, uh, fucking (laughs) Walter White and Jesse Pinkman enter the fray, that's when everything turns south. But for now, like, we understand the beats. We know how this is going to end, but uh, they're still finding ways to dramatize and to thrill and to surprise and to mystify and better call Saul's fifth season has been its best season and frankly the best season in either breaking bad show episodes eight nine and ten the best run on television of episodes best stretch highest batting average the whole season was great but those final three episodes especially that ninth one oh boy Lalo, baby. God. Fucking Lalo. Shout out to Tony Dalton. Shout out to Ray Seahorn. Ray Seahorn as Kim Wexler. That's the best performance on TV. The Emmys can give the award to whoever they want. But that's the best performance on TV. It's the best character in either Breaking Bad show. How many more ways do you want me to say it? The show is better than Breaking Bad. And if you're not watching it, you're doing life wrong. There were a lot of new shows on my top 10 list. I believe 8 out of 10 are new shows. 7 out of 10. Mando, Jeopardy, Better Call Saul. The only three returning shows on my top 10 list. It is easy to be distracted by the new. It's easy to be distracted by the sexy young thing. I'm here with the vet. Number one, Better Call Saul. It wasn't even close. This is Cultured. We'll be right back. All right. uh, Let us move on to the world of music. It's been another strange year for the music industry, particularly live music. I think it's safe to say that is the industry most in danger of extinction this year. Is that safe to say? Obviously, movie theaters, big thing, live events, retail, malls. All in massive danger. I mean, their decline has only been uh, sped up by this pandemic. Amazon, Walmart grow and the mom and pop stores, the malls are just shuttering their doors by the day. So all of those are, are major victims of this. But live music may be the last industry to reopen when the vaccine is out and all is said and done, I think. 
I mean, 2021, it's going to be another bad year for Live Nation. You know, it's going to be another bad year for some of these live venues, casinos and arenas and uh, even like Broadway shows, theater. It's going to be tough. And these small stages, these small bars, these clubs, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But this year has uh, has been a, has been an unusual year just in the fact that the normal cycle was broken. I mean, traditionally, there are summer releases. There are summer hits. The idea of the perfect summer song, the perfect summer single has been around now for what, 30, 40 years? Um, and there was really no need for that because people weren't doing barbecues and artists weren't going out and performing live. And so you had a lot of very personal, stripped-down acoustic records. We're going to talk about Taylor Swift in a minute. She put out Folklore. That was the number one uh, album of the year in terms of Spotify streams and album sales. It's also number one on my list, spoiler alert. But that is the perfect example of a pandemic release, of a coronavirus-inspired release. It was recorded in isolation with Jack Antonoff and Aaron Dessner from The National uh Taylor Swift just would share text messages like between the three of them like hey listen to this thing that I threw together and it's very stripped down and it is very personal and it is uh at times like you know almost like too claustrophobic like it feels like I am listening to this in a cabin in Vermont and uh you know some people may find that relaxing I consider that <laughs> to be like shining territory you know what I'm saying <laughs> Like I think that's that's psychotic. I like that's that's cabin fever shit. But anyway, that's the type of record you saw this year. Um many times like musicians would just put up covers of things on YouTube or on uh, on Periscope or they would live stream on Instagram and uh sometimes DJs would play songs on Instagram like watch parties. That was a big thing at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so obviously music is going to feel a lot different when it's recorded at home versus when it's recorded live or even recorded in a studio. Like you can just tell a lot of these artists were not working with the same number of musicians that they worked with on previous records. And it wasn't intentional. It's just, that was the state of the industry and that's how business was being conducted in 2020. And the other thing is there was no need for big stadium anthems, you know? There wasn't a need for a hot single. There wasn't a need for music you could tour with. Like, this has also been an idea that's been around for decades. There's the album that you make for the tour, and there's the album that you make for yourself. You know, Springsteen's Born to Run is for the tour. Springsteen's Nebraska is for himself. One you listen to at home, one you listen to live. Springsteen, another artist that we're going to talk about in a bit. So that's going to be interesting to see. Obviously, you still had the Weekends album. You still had Ariana Grande's album. You still had traditional pop music, even WAP. You know, uh, that's a song that would have come out any year. And 2020 is no exception. But I'm curious to see, first of all, which artists that were holding out on us are going to come out with albums because they are planning on doing the tour. And also, what kinds of albums are you going to see? Are you going to see less acoustic stuff? Are you going to see stuff that is built for a big crowd and is built for a large arena? 
are you going to come out with stuff that is built for nightclubbing? That is built for like 2 a.m. on a Saturday? Because Folklore certainly isn't. Even the Phoebe Bridgers album isn't. So I, I think that's the biggest narrative going into 2021. 2020, I thought, was a good year for music. Although, like any industry, it was put on pause for a while. The stuff that we had was small. The stuff that we had was scarce. But the stuff that we had was really good. I don't know if we're going to see an uptick next year. I don't know what live music is going to look like. And uh, frankly, I don't know what artists are interested in doing more stuff in 2021. But my prediction would be you're going to see the tempo pick up on some of these tracks. You're going to hear more instrumentation and perhaps more songs that you can tap your toe to as opposed to cry to in your home alone on a Friday night. Anyway, I put together a top five. You know me. I kind of stay in my lane when it comes to music. I kind of have my tastes and I haven't evolved that much. <laughs> I'll just tell you right now. Haven't evolved that much. Haven't added much to the repertoire. Haven't thrown in a lot of different genres. I didn't all of a sudden become a ska guy in the last 365 days. The list is still the list with some variations and some welcome surprises, but it's still the list. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get to it right now. So here we go. Number five for me. It's Springsteen and the E Street Band. The record's called Letter to You. Springsteen does something a little quieter, a little more personal, a little more earnest. Everybody loses their minds. And they were right to lose their minds with this one, because I certainly did. The title track, Letter to You, is awesome. It's just an awesome throwback E Street Band tune that could have come out in 1985 and you wouldn't know the difference. But there's a lot of other great tracks on there. Janie Needs a Shooter, Last Man Standing, Rainmaker, If I Were a Priest, Ghosts, I think you could... Uh, you could see them perform that on SNL at the end of December. I think they were on the last SNL episode of the year. They did that song ghosts. It's a Springsteen record and an East street band record and a damn good one. There are big stadium hits that I'm sure are going to play very well when he starts touring again. I cannot wait to see Springsteen live. I've never seen Springsteen live. And it's one of the shows that I have to do before I die I, or before Springsteen dies, I guess. It's probably more likely that that's going to happen, but who knows these days? Um, I have to see that show because, of course, he's considered to be one of the great live acts ever. But there are some songs in here that would just work perfectly in front of a crowd and some that I think, as we were just saying, work perfectly at home. Stripped down, intimate, alone. It's the magic of Springsteen, man. There, there are few songwriters that 
capture Americana better than him and that capture the sense of nostalgia and the sense of longing for the old days more effectively. I, I mean, a lot of artists like him have grown old and gotten pretty damn corny. He has remained a fine wine and uh, God, he, he's really one of a kind. This Bruce, the boss, man, they don't call him that for nothing. Letter to you, my number five. Number four. This is a record that got a lot of love at the beginning of the year. It's by Fiona Apple, and it's called Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Time was a minute, but Shamika said I had potential. 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 So this is a record that I think I talked about at the time. It was after Pitchfork had given it a perfect 10 out of 10 score, which was the first time they did so since my beautiful Twisted Fantasy. So it was a big deal when it came out again at the beginning of the pandemic. I think this record came out in April, maybe even March. No, April 17th. I'm looking at right now. So this was a month in. Everyone was still stuck at home. Everybody was still following the rules. And uh, here's a record that Sounds like nothing else in pop music today. It was also a Fiona Apple record, and those are few and far between. I think it's been over six years since she put out her last one. I I, I was just looking at this. Fiona Apple has only put out six studio records, and they're all pretty short, but they all pack a massive punch. And she's one of those artists. I, I wrote about this on the site. She's like one of our last rock stars. She does what rock stars do. You know, she is very careful with her public persona. She is uh, is uh, is very sparing in her releases. She doesn't give you a lot of rough cuts. She's not on social media. She's not on Instagram. Always peeping her shit. Like this is what rock stars do. Rock stars they wait in the weeds and then they come out with something like fetch the bolt cutters, which is a little hard on the ears at times. And I think it took me a while to truly appreciate it for what it, for what it was. You know, it's kind of surprising that people were so, um, uh, were so receptive to it that early in its run because, uh, it's not the most accessible album ever. It, it was recorded at home and not because of the virus. This is actually something she had been working on for many years. Um, but this was a, a concept album that she started putting together in 2017 using household items like pots and pans and using the 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 cat and the dog on some of these tracks and uh I, I don't think anything was done to her actual vocals like there there are there's no curing going on there's no auto tune there's there's nothing it's very raw it's it's very uh, uh avant-garde but it's cool it's fucking cool because rock stars are cool and it's percussive and it's daring and it's different. And there are some awesome songs on here like uh Shamika, which I think got a Grammy nomination this year. I think the record got a bunch of Grammy nominations. Uh, I want to love, I want you to love me, which is the first track is incredible. And even the, the title track fetch the bolt cutters is worth a listen. Um, Heavy Balloon is really good. Relay is really good. Um, I love it. I love it. Rock stars. We need more of them. Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters at number three. Excuse me, that's number four. Um, 
Number three. Yes, I'm predictable, but that's why you keep coming back. It's Bob Dylan. She's speaking to me, speaking with her eyes. I've grown so tired of chasing lies. Mother muses, wherever you are. I've already outlived my life by far. Rough and Rowdy Ways has been showered with love and adoration over the past few months, has appeared on a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year, all rightfully so. Somehow I think the album is still being a little underrated, which is insane to say. I don't think it's up there with like Time Out of Mind or Blonde on Blonde or Free Will and Bob Dylan or any of the great Dylan records, but it might be the best Dylan record of the last 20 years. It might be the best of the 21st century. It's probably up there with Tempest. Might be as good as Street Legal. Like, this is a really, really good album. And a lot of those albums mean a lot to Nico. Um, but, but this one really moved me. I was joking about this on the website. Only half joking. I said that Rough and Rowdy Ways was the best hip-hop album, the best rap album of 2020. And I was being a little facetious, but not really. Not really. Because at 80 years old, this dude has bars. Like, Dylan can still write with the best of them. This dude can spit. (sighs) Including this song, Murder Most Foul, which was the first number one hit single of Bob Dylan's career. Think about that. Voice of his generation, most influential American artist ever. Uh, I would say the greatest pop music artist of all time. And, uh, you know, certainly has had a very long tail and has written songs that mean a lot to a lot of people. Murder Most Foul, a 17-minute epic, like sort of beat poem epic about the JFK assassination, the first time any single of his hit number one on the Billboard charts. Whoa. That song's amazing, and it's so dense, and it's so packed with cultural references and historical references and weird tangents. Uh, The last like 10 minutes of that song is just like Dylan talking to a piano player being like, play this and play that. Uh, And I just love when this guy experiments. I love when this guy freewheels, no pun intended. And uh, Man, there's so much great poetry on here. There's so much just incredible lyrical content. And it's the type of record that rewards further reading it rewards further listening it rewards attention music is just it's so passive now the experience of listening to music you know it's what you do when you're doing other things when you're cleaning the house when you're driving when you're doing homework whatever like this is the type of record you are not going to get it unless you are listening to it while not doing anything else um and yeah, I think all of the hype is is warranted. It's an incredible album. Um, best song, I guess. Goodbye, Jimmy Reed is the is the uh, the safe choice there. I love Mother Amuses though. Actually, that might be my favorite one. Uh, but the guy's got bars. He's still got it. Plenty more left in the tank for old Robert Zimmerman. Let's hope there's like five more of these records still to come before he passes away. Rough and rowdy ways. At number three, number two, it's this chick, Phoebe Bridgers, and it's this album called Punisher. 
usually ahead of the music industry. That's not generally where I am in the race. Some people are like three steps ahead. I'm three laps behind. I know a lot of people that know every SoundCloud rapper, every local indie band. Like the second I hear about an artist, at least 10 people in my life have already heard that name. And I was certainly late to the party on Phoebe Bridgers. I'll own that. In 2017, she put out this album, Stranger in the Alps, and it earned her some acclaim, and she's been an indie darling for a number of years. I think she was in the uh, the group Boy Genius, which is like this local LA band um, that I think also had some success. But this was the first time I had heard of Phoebe Bridgers, and I think it's the first time the world, or most of the world, had heard of Phoebe Bridgers. This is the type of record that catapults you into superstardom, and uh, rightfully so. It's a great record. It's an absolutely phenomenal record. I like angsty music. I didn't always like angsty music. I didn't always like emo music. I didn't always love, you know, music about uh, about zombies and about UFOs and about Halloween. And uh, that's what Punisher is. It's dark. It's melancholic. It's vibey. It's breathy. It's airy. Um, I, I hesitate to call it like angsty teenage girl music, which is... I think my bread and butter now that's that's kind of what Taylor Swift is doing now Phoebe Bridgers I think has a a harder edge to her but her music is gorgeous to listen to um what is my favorite song here Kyoto is the big hit um I know the end is the is the the song that you're gonna hear in stadiums when Phoebe Bridgers starts playing them but I love Halloween I love Chinese Satellite Savior Complex I think might be my favorite song um yeah it, not necessarily the album you want to listen to in quarantine but the album that i did listen to in quarantine and believe it or not it got me through a lot of it i just hope and i wrote about this on the site i just hope that phoebe bridgers continues to make interesting stuff like this for the next 10 years because artists like this i'm thinking about you know people like ellie goulding she's a very ellie goulding sound to her a lot of wispiness a lot of breathiness um a perfect cover artist she's been doing a lot of covers on youtube and 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 instagram over the last several months and you understand why you want to hear the world through the voice of phoebe bridgers you want to hear what her voice would sound like singing the goo goo dolls singing tom petty you know and i don't think she covered tom petty but she did do a a a cover of iris by the goo goo dolls which uh which went viral but with a voice like that it's very easy to fall into the pop music trap and it's very easy to do a bond song and it's very easy to do a feature on an eminem track i I just hope that she keeps doing indie emo folk like this because uh it works for me not normally my jam not normally my type of cat but phoebe welcome to the spotify rotation you will be here for a while and as I said, number one, it's Tay Tay. But if I just showed up at your party, would you have me? Would you want me? Would you tell me to go fuck myself or lead me to the garden? In the garden, would you trust me if I told you it was just a summer thing? I'm only 17. I don't know anything, but I know I miss you. 
Taylor Swift is not a good songwriter. Taylor Swift is a great songwriter. Taylor Swift has been a great songwriter for a long time. She's been a good pop star. She's been a good singer. She's been a good performer. She's been good in front of the tabloids. She does all the celebrity stuff right. But underneath that surface, underneath all of the bitching about Harry Styles, uh, is this the next Joni Mitchell? Is that is that too much of a stretch? Seriously, like this is the best form of pop music. This is what pop music ought to be. Hopefully this is what pop music continues to sound like. And that is no slight on Lover. That is no slight on 1989. That is no slight on any of the other brilliant Taylor Swift records. I, I mean it. I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic here. I'm not. That is no slide in any of the other Taylor records. I'd love more of those too. But on a lyrical level, folklore really took a step up. It really did. Uh, God, meet me behind the mall. Oof. <laughs> Best verse of the last 10 years? I think maybe. I think maybe. I tweeted this when the album came out. Like, Bro, Taylor Swift figured out a way to put the word gauche in a pop song, and it wasn't tacky. Like, last Great American Dynasty, like, that is the type of song that you're supposed to roll your eyes at. Uh, it's my favorite song on the record, I think. It's amazing. It's amazing what Taylor was able to do here. Um, juggling different points of view, juggling different characters, different narratives, it's not all in that first person. It's not all bitching about boys. It's not all about bad breakups. It's not all about moving on. Like there are a lot of ideas normally outside of Taylor Swift's comfort zone. She went there. She crushed it. The incredible turns of phrases um, in some of these records. I talked about it on the website. If you want to hear more, a more uh, detailed breakdown of some of these lyrics, I, I wrote about it on my top five um, too many thoughts media.com or tmt.media for short, but it is the piece of art that I spent the most time with in 2020, and I think I am a better person for it. Not exaggerating here. Folklore, my favorite thing from 2020, number one album of the list. It wasn't even particularly close. Okay, that's music. We'll be right back. It's cultured. We're going to wrap things up in a bit. Okay, I am not going to go over my movie list because I did that already on the other podcast, Movie Hall of Fame. Adam Hall and I both gave our top tens, and it was very long and very in-depth. So if you want my thoughts on the uh, the state of film in 2020 and now going into 2021, you can listen to that. I, I will say that there is more uncertainty in the film industry than there is in the television or music industry. Um a lot can happen. A lot can happen. And anyone that portends to know what is going to happen with both movie theaters, physical movie theaters, and also streaming is lying to you. I mean, I can make an educated guess and I have made an educated guess. I think that movies are out the door or movie theaters, I should say, are out the door. Movies are going to be here to stay. Cinema is going to be here to stay. Film is is a is a art form built to last. And so whatever form it takes, you're still going to see great movies. How we watch it, though, that distribution model is the real question. 
there is not going to be a lack of content. Unlike in television where you're going to see a little dip, unlike music where you already saw a little dip, movie studios have pushed most of the major releases at least a year, if not two years. So what you're going to see now in 2021 are the projects that entered development at the beginning of the pandemic and are just slowly wrapping up and also some projects that are already in the can. So when you look at the box office returns in 2021, you have to understand there is plenty for people to see Warner brothers excluded. Like we can talk about Warner brothers. It's a whole different conversation and we're going to continue talking about Warner brothers for a while, but plenty of Marvel movies available, plenty of Disney films available, plenty of universal stuff available. New fast and furious movie. There's plenty. There's plenty for you to see in 2021. There are plenty for audiences to see. You're not going to be able to say that, oh, there's just no good movies out. That's why box office returns are down. Some cinephiles may make that argument. They are mistaken. There's plenty of content. There are plenty of demographics that are going to be serviced. There are plenty of four quadrant releases, as insiders are fond of saying, available for box office ticket sales. The question is distribution. The question is, will you be able to reteach the market, how to see movies in movie theaters again. Because that's what's happening. Don't let anyone kid you. Yes, LA, New York, you still can't see movies. I understand. Two biggest markets are shut down. Not a lot of films are actually in theaters. At least not a lot of big releases are in theaters. That is primarily the reason why box office returns are so low. But anecdotally, you know this. It's hard to pay $13 to see a movie on the big screen when you can get it for home at home for free or when you are used to watching movies at home for free. This is now a learned behavior that we're going to have to unlearn. And that is, I think, the biggest fight. And look, box office returns down 80% this year. Obviously, the biggest decline ever. This year, you're going to see an uptick. How much of an uptick? Who knows? Who knows when LA and New York will be open again? Who knows when audiences are going to be comfortable going to movie theaters again? Who knows? The vaccine really is the big question here. Like, (laughs) you know, when it comes right down to it, it's the vaccine, stupid. Every question that I've asked on today's podcast, every hypothetical that I've played out, the answer is, when are we going to get the vaccine? When are enough people going to get the vaccine where movie theaters can open at full capacity again? So let's just get that out on Front Street, right? But also, Wonder Woman apparently did very well for HBO Max. Didn't do so well in movie theaters. Warner Brothers is like, oh, this is great for movie theaters, too. People that want to watch it at home, watch it at home. People that want to see it in the theater, see it in the theater. Turns out no one wants to see it in the theater. The movie, I think, has been out for, what, two weeks now? Made $30 million over those two weeks? That's a bad box office return. It's bad. That movie's supposed to make $100 million opening weekend. Minimum, if not more. $400 million in its run. It's not going to break fifty. Maybe that's all right. Maybe HBO Max is cool with that. I'm sure they are. 
maybe the calculus works out where they'll make more in the long run on HBO Max subscriptions than Wonder Woman ticket sales. Fine. But theaters should be very worried. The, the, the data is back and it is not pretty. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows what this is going to look like? But keep an eye on the box office. Keep an eye on the box office uh, because things are changing rapidly. Plenty of content, though. Plenty of stuff in the pipeline ready for your consumption. I don't have, again, my own top 10 list because I did it on another show. But I did want to shout out someone else's top 10 list. Uh, because now it's sort of become a tradition. <laughs> this has sort of become a thing that we do every year. It's a perennial favorite. It is Nico rants about Barack Obama's favorite movies of the year. And uh, this is always fun because it's a controversial segment. And uh, I piss everyone off. Um, but I, I tell the truth and I speak truth to power. <laughs> And I'm a good patriot that holds our leaders and former leaders accountable. And when Obama tries slipping this bullshit list through Instagram unchallenged, you better believe that I'm on the front lines asking the tough questions. You better believe it. Okay. Let's read this list. I'm not going to even read the TV shows or the songs. Actually, Obama did admit that his daughter helped him with the songs. So I'm just going to focus on the movies who he credits to no one. According to him, this is, this is Obama's uh, 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 caption on Instagram. Like everyone else, we were stuck inside a lot this year. And with streaming further blurring the lines between theatrical movies and television features, I've expanded. Look at old Barry Malton over here. Uh, <laughs> old Barry Ebert. Telling us about the shifting dynamics of the film industry. Uh, see, like, what good am I anymore, right? Like, if you could just read this on Obama's Instagram, like, why do you need my podcast for an hour and a half on a Monday? The, the answer is you don't. And you should probably stop listening now. But yes, that is true, President Barack Obama. With the streaming further blurring the lines between theatrical movies and television features, I've expanded the list to include visual storytelling that I've enjoyed this year, regardless of format. Um, is, uh, is, is Small X on this list? See, here's the thing. Oh, oh, it, oh my God, yes. Fucking Barack, dude. See, th this is all you need to know. Barack's putting Lover's Rock on the movie list rather than the TV show list. I don't buy it. I don't buy that Barack Obama is on film Twitter or on Letterboxd enough to know about the debate between Small Axe as a film and Small Axe as a TV show. I mean, that's the tell. That is at least one of many tells. Okay? Like, he wouldn't know. If Barack Obama was actually going on Amazon Prime, stumbling on the Small Axe miniseries directed by Steve McQueen, and he saw Small Axe Episode 2, Lover's Rock, he wouldn't know the difference. He would call it a TV show because it is a TV show. There is a cinephile 
who is very avid on Letterboxd, who works for the Obama office, who works for the Obama production company. He's probably a lot like me, probably looks like me. He's probably got glasses and he's probably a little pudgy. (laughs) And he makes this list for Obama every year. And that's cool. But just say that. Just say, hey, Howard the intern gave me his favorite movies and I thought it was worth sharing. I didn't see all of them. I saw a few of them. And the ones I saw were good. So I assume the rest were good too because Howard has great taste. He wouldn't know. Barack Obama would not know that Lover's Rock is considered a movie among cinephiles. Anyway, here's the list. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I buy it. Netflix release. August Wilson play. I'm sure Obama enjoys the work of August Wilson. Uh, he, of course, is, a, is a, this iconic uh, writer of the black experience. And a lot of his work is uh, very influential. And his stories mean a lot uh, to civil rights and uh, to the black community. And I understand I understand that he saw my Rainey's Black Bottom. Also, Chadwick Boseman, rest in peace, his final performance. Worth the watch. Here's where you lose me. Bean Pole. Bean Pole. Russian film. Directed by Kantamir Balagov. In World War II, Leningrad, World War II has been devastated. Demolish, uh, the city has been demolishing its buildings and leaving its citizens in tatters. Physically and mentally. Two young women search for meaning and hope and the struggle to rebuild their lives amongst the ruins. No, you didn't see this. Same with Bakaru. You didn't. Barack Obama doesn't have a subscription to the Criterion channel. Okay? It's the only way you can watch Bakaru. <laughs> the Brazilian film, mostly in Portuguese. Uh, about, uh, this, this village that is, uh, that is, uh, it's, it's like a horror movie, right? I haven't seen the movie either. I've been meaning to watch it on Criterion, but it's like a controversial horror film and it's like pretty violent, right? And it divided audiences when it came out. No, he's not watching this movie with Michelle on a Tuesday night. He's not firing up Bakaroo. Like, stop it. Stop lying. Stop lying. You watch Wonder Woman 1984 like the rest of us. All right? Nomadland, maybe you got a screener. You like Frances McDormand. You heard this movie might be in the Oscar race. All right. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt on Nomadland, although I haven't seen it yet because it's not available to me. But again, I'm not a former president. and I don't get screeners from the Academy. Soul. All right. Fine. Everyone saw Soul. Everyone liked Soul. Lover's Rock, maybe. Mank, all right collective what the fuck is collective Uh, a documentary follows a crack team of investigators at the romanian newspaper gazetta uh as they try to uncover a vast healthcare fraud that enriched moguls and politicians and led to the death of innocent citizens i haven't even heard of collective martin eden no let him go? No. Time? Maybe. Boy State? Maybe. Sell it in the spades? Fuck no. Crip Camp, Higher Ground Production. That's Barack Obama's production company. He probably got a screener of Crip Camp. And he probably said it was great. And he probably had no notes. I say this every year. <laughs> it's, 
I sound like a broken record. But if I haven't gotten around to these, the president of the United States hasn't gotten around to them. He's been campaigning in Georgia. He's been writing a book. Stop. He's been, he's been helping the Biden campaign. Worrying about the Senate. You didn't have time for Martin Eden. Beanpole, I want just one of you cowardly journalists in the fake news media. (laughs) I just want you to get Barack Obama in a room and I want you to ask him what the plot of Beanpole is. Just ask him. Hey, Barry, what's Martin Eden about? Hey, Stephen Colbert, Oprah, next time you have this dude on your TV show, I understand like you want to talk about, uh, you know, shattering glass ceilings and uh, equal rights and police reform. All that stuff's well and good. Important work. But if you want me to take you seriously, like I just named Barack Obama to tell me what the plot of Let Him Go is. That's it. <laughs> That's as political as I'm getting today. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, guys, happy new year. This has been very long, but very fun. I hope you felt the same way. Uh, there's going to be some changes around here. Going to be some changes in these parts. Don't know exactly what this podcast is going to look like in 2021, but it's going to look different as I am hopefully going to look a little different as everyone will hopefully look a little different because 2020 is our year guys and let's kill it let's crush it let's show it who's boss you guys are the best again one last time too many thoughts media.com or tmt.media for short if you want to read the elongated versions of my movie and music lists and go listen to the movie hall of fame if you want my top 10 movie list adam and i had some fun debating some uh some movies towards the top of my list uh and it got a little got a little frisky there just say that why is this a thing did the Watadis, our end of year wrap up over there awarding the best and brightest and in the worst movies imaginable two cents radio did a new year's show we're turning the page babies it's time to move on 2020 is in the rearview mirror i got 2021 vision now it's even better than 2020, I think. Nah, it's definitely not. I should get that checked out with my optometrist. <laughs> I love you. I'll see you soon. This has been Cultured. And uh, don't forget to come back next time, whenever that may be. Because you know what happens then. You and I, we get culture.